Good morning. Good morning. So nice to see you here today. Um, thank you for coming. Are there folks here for the first time uh, to Austin Zen Center? Great. Welcome. So in the 17th and 18th century, there was a, um, a Zen monk named Hakuin who lived in a village, a uh, fishing village. And in this village, there was a beautiful young woman who, um, whose parents worked in the fishing market. Um, and this woman uh, became pregnant and her parents were incensed. Um, and they demanded that she tell them who the father was so they could take the issue up with the father. And um, wanting to protect her lover, she said um, that Hakuin is the father. So um, her parents marched right up to the temple and um, knocked on the door and said, um, you know, what have you done? This is um, an abomination, and this child is now yours, your responsibility. So when the child was born, they gave the child to Hakuin, and he said, uh, is that so? Um, so he took the child in and cared for the child and uh, found resources in the town, um, you know, milk and other things to um, take care of the, the child. Um, and after some, I think, years in the story, um, the, uh, the mother was consumed with regret and said to her parents, you know, this, I didn't, I didn't tell you the truth of who the father was. Um, and so the parents marched right up to the temple and knocked on the door and said, we're so sorry, you know, we've um, impugned you wrongly and um, we will take care of the, the child now. The child is our responsibility. So Hakon gave the baby back and said, is that so? Um, <clears throat> And that's the end of the story. <laughs> but its lessons keep going. And I think this was a, um, you know, hearing this story um, had a big impact on me about um, this attitude of um, composure. And um, I think it, it helped, it was a moment of kind of awakening a certain curiosity about well, what is Zen practice that um, creates this stability to not kind of get caught in reaction and um, not be caught by my own perception, you know. I want the world to like me and if everybody thinks I'm, you know, um, if I'm wrongly accused of something, especially, you know, I want to, um, how can I just let that be part of the kind of, um, the circumstances of my life and no more. Um, 
so in Buddhism, there's lots of lists of you know, ways of kind of simplifying practice um, and ways to kind of um, sort of see how, how we can engage with practice. Um, and the two that are, I think, most common in Zen Buddhism, in my experience, are the, the six paramitas. Um, so these are six perfections or virtues. Um, and they include, uh, there's actually, there, there's some variation. There's also a list of ten paramitas. But let's say the six is kind of the most common one in our school of Zen. And um, the six are, are generosity or dana paramita, morality or shila paramita. Um, one that's translated as toler, I like the, the translation of tolerance, but it's also patience. Uh, which is Kshanti Paramita, um, energy or vitality, uh, which is Virya Paramita, and then meditation or Samadhi Paramita, and wisdom, Prajna Paramita. So these are kind of a way of saying these are six qualities that um, are helpful in practice, are helpful in um, engaging our life through these lenses. Um, another, the, the second most common, I think, in Zen Buddhism is the four Brahma-viharas, or the heavenly abodes. So, um, loving kindness, which is metta, uh, compassion, karuna, sympathetic joy, or happiness for the, the uh, successes and well-beings of others, which is mudita, and equanimity, or uh, upekka. Um, so in the last few years, um, at different times, uh, I've been playing with the idea of um, distilling it even further. Like, can, can I engage with Buddhist practice through the lens of just two qualities? Um, one being, uh, so last time I, I spoke, for those of you that were here, I talked about letting go. So uh, one quality could be letting go, and another quality could be acceptance. So is there a way to see Buddhist practice or my own life as some dynamic tension of accepting and letting go? Um, so uh, since last time we talked a little bit about letting go, I thought today we would talk a little bit about acceptance. Um, and maybe before we do that, to just kind of bring us to the experience of this in our own body, uh, I think this idea came out of a, a guided meditation practice that I was um, given by my teacher which is just a two-word two practice. So as I breathe in, um, I can just kind of gently offer the word to myself silently, uh, acceptance or accepting, allowing. So any variation of this that kind of feels right to my own body. And then as I breathe out, um, I say silently to myself, 
letting go, releasing, relinquishing. So maybe just for a minute or two, if we could sit quietly and just try these two words on for ourselves. And I think in any um, guided meditation that involves language or a word, it's most helpful in my experience to bring up this word as a kind of question. So I'm not trying to impose some state of being on myself. It's more like, can I try that on? What would that be like? So as I breathe in, what would accepting be like? What would that feel like? What would that kind of, um, how would that register in my own body? And maybe it's a kind of um, unwillingness, you know, and that's okay too. No, I don't want to accept anything. I'm not full. So whatever the reaction is, that's the practice, to stay with our response. But let's maybe just quietly Breathing in, accepting, breathing out, letting go. Okay, thank you for being willing to try that on. Um, does anybody want to share their impressions or something that came up in that? their own resistance to either of those phrases? So 
So sometimes if I look at my life as a, a kind of, um, or my practice as a balance of these things, um, it can actually be a kind of barometer for where I'm at to notice which of these two phrases kind of doesn't feel good to me or as good or something. Which one am I kind of, eh, I don't really want that one, no. So, um, I do believe that being fully present and being um, awake to our life in the moment um, requires this kind of flexibility of receiving and offering, um, kind of being in some um, rhythm with what's happening. Um, and one way to look at um, call it dysfunction, but, you know, in Chinese medicine, you know, pain or imbalance is a kind of blockage. It's a blockage from um, being in this rhythm of our kind of momentary existence. So, which is okay, which happens, you know, that's part of being uh, human, but it helps me to um, kind of gauge which, which I don't really want to let go right now. Okay, you know, that helps me um, discover um, where I am in relation to my life in any given moment. Um, <clears throat> so there's lots of you know ways to um, look at accepting or acceptance. And one we just sort of tried is a kind of physical, you know. When I breathe in, and I'm sort of encouraging acceptance, am I allowing a kind of fullness of breath um, or not? You know, am I, am I kind of guarded against that? Um, so this practice that we just tried is something, you know, we could do for uh, days and weeks and years of our life and, and still kind of learn new things from it. Um, so one kind of experience of accepting is a kind of physical. Um, am I allowing air, the, the sensory input of the outside world into my body? Or am I kind of holding that off in some way? the sound of the thunder. Does it kind of rattle into my body or do I kind of um, hold it at bay in some way phys physically? So Suzuki Roshi had this phrase, um, things as it is. And there's an interesting story. This is a lovely book um, of just short stories by um, Suzuki Roshi's students about him. Like, in, and it's almost like a little book of koans or something. Little interactions that they had with him that stuck out, you know, and kind of made an imprint. And one of the stories in here is about a student like asking him, "Did you really mean things as it is? Like, you know, that's not correct English." Um, should be things as they are, you know. Um, he said, no, no, that's what I meant. Um, 
And I think in that phrase, there's a sense of, um, to me, of uh, there's a reality that I live in, that I appear in. Um, and I think one of the big um, tasks of our life and certainly in Zen practice, is how to come into alignment with this life that I'm given. Um, so this is the, the kind of the main aspect of acceptance that I want to kind of focus on today is um, a deep level of acceptance of the reality of our lives um, as a starting point. So it's not a kind of fatalistic, um, well, it's just the way things are, you know. Um, in a way it is, <laughs> um, because I think what we discover in trying to alter or manipulate our reality is um, often how futile and painful that process is. Um, <clears throat> So things as it is, um, there's a wonderful teacher at Tassajara, Leslie James, who kind of inspired this talk. Um, I, I didn't realize until I started writing this talk that I actually listened to a talk of the same title by her about a month ago, just sort of rattling around. Um, but she has this really warm way of saying, of kind of like um, laughing at herself that, um, that there could be some other person sitting here, that this could be some other room, you know, that this could be some other life. Um, we spend a lot of time in this very creative space of what we think could be or should be or how we want somebody else to act or treat us or, um, and it's all fantasy, you know, it's all, um, It's all some you know, wild imagination of something other than things as it is. Um, and we, it's interesting that you know, we do it to gain relief. Like we want to be in control. We want to soothe ourselves and our discomforts. And so we're kind of working at other people and our surroundings and all in this effort to be okay right here. And the wonderful kind of, maybe it's sometimes difficult to swallow, um, thing that we get from practice is this kind of understanding of how um, we're, we're actually increasing our own suffering. And probably the, those of others, but we most acutely feel it here. Um, and how much, you know, what the gift of practice can be is how much of a relief it is to give up those um, ideas of some other me, of some other place, of some other reality of my life. Oh, okay, I don't have to keep kind of making that happen somehow. So then what's here? You know, what is when I kind of land in my life as it is, oh. like I'm a, a little bit more willing to, um, 
know, check it out or um, I'm a little more engaged and interested with it, even when it's difficult. Um, if I've given up some assumption that it could be some other way. So in Not Always So, Suzuki Roshi says, um, he says, so there is nothing to rely on in our practice. But on the other hand, there is always something provided for you. Always. According to the circumstances, you will have some aid to practice our way. Even the pain in your legs is an aid. By the pain you have, you practice our way. So hot weather or nice cool weather or hunger or mosquitoes or the pain in your legs can be an aid to your practice with which you can stand up and establish your practice. So not only Buddha's teaching, but everything can be an aid to us. So I like this sort of widening the scope of what's happening. And I do agree that often we start to encounter this ability to um, be with things as it is in Zazen. So Zazen is this this opportunity to just stay with however we are in this moment. and sometimes it can be as simple as that. You know, if I can just stay present with the pain in my knee, um, maybe there's some relief in that. Maybe there's some um, relaxing into my life. So that is the feeling of acceptance to me. Acceptance is this kind of like, ah, I can give up this struggle, this battle. And I think we, um, we learn that in Zazen, even when we're not consciously doing it. It's like, um, I may be drifting off and remembering some kind of vacation I took five years ago in Zazen but there's tension in my body, or there's, there's pain in my knee. Um, and I think even just the act of not getting up and walking out of the zendo because of the thing in my knee, if I'm just there, um, there's a chance that I kind of come back from that story of that vacation five years ago. Um, and there's a kind of, um, I don't know, a slow, subtle confidence building, like, oh, it's okay. I, I actually survived that pain in my knee. It didn't drive me insane. Which certainly sometimes it feels like it will. I think in this practice that um, 
that I offered and that my teacher offered to me that of just kind of attuning our breath with this sort of bringing in and letting go. This kind of allowing the outside world in and releasing our inside world out. Um, this mixing of the two worlds, you know, kind of this blurring of this boundary between my inside world and the outside world. So watching air move in and out of my body is a way of realizing that there isn't actually so much of a um, distinct boundary as it often feels like. Um, <clears throat> so in a way, accepting the outside world in, and, and honestly, to be very honest, that this is the one that, that I I feel like has been most difficult in my own practice, in my own life, that I'm resisting taking anything in. Um, so to breathe freely in, um, you know, at times it can be, can kind of have a rare feeling for me, like, oh, that's actually a freely moving breath in. Whereas a lot of times my experience was like, oh, I can feel how I'm resisting that. And just staying with that feeling, staying with my own struggle. Um, I think that's also a form of acceptance. So acceptance doesn't mean like I'm just totally okay with everything as it's happening. Acceptance means that I'm at least awake or aware to the ways that I'm fighting, to the ways that I'm struggling with it. Mm. So in a chapter, so both Pat and I have been um, quoting from this Katagiri book um, that we both recommend that just came out a year ago called The Light That Shines to Infinity or Through Infinity. But in a chapter called Total Dynamic Activity, which is another translation of Zen Ki, which I think is what a lot of the inspiration of his book is from this Dogen fascicle. Um, he says, when you wash your face, accept washing as universal effort first. And then you make your own individual effort. So he's talking about washing your face, but in a way, everything we do kind of starts with everything. You know, can we start from there? That's a broad acceptance. So everything we do is universal activity. And in practice, we're kind of becoming more conscious of that or trying to open to that possibility. So, when you wash your face, accept washing as universal effort first, and then make your own individual effort. Deal with everything, your face, the water, your posture of standing in front of the basin as universal activity. Through the actions of washing your face, you, through the actions of washing your face, you can go beyond your usual understanding and experience the pure nature of washing your face. This is the realm of total dynamic action. Right in the middle of taking good care of your individual effort as universal effort, the whole world comes into one screen. That one screen is the big picture of your life. When you see that living screen, you can learn who you really are. 
what makes it possible for the whole world to come into one screen, it is by your own acting. When you act with sincerity and a warm heart, there is a great opportunity, a very subtle opportunity, to invite the whole world into your life. That is wonderful. But if you misunderstand acting, it can be very dangerous. So one um, kind of thought experiment that I was playing with is how the just acceptance itself, the practice of acceptance, how it maps on to all of these other lists um, that Zen loves and uses. Um, so what does acceptance look like or evoke? I think most clearly um, the one that came up was equanimity. Um, so, um, so Sharon Salzberg in her book on the four Brahma Viharas um, says that equanimity strength derives from a combination of understanding and trust. It is based on an understanding that the conflict and frustration we feel when we can't control the world doesn't come from our inability to do so, but rather from the fact that we are trying to control the uncontrollable. <clears throat> we know better than to try and to prevent the seasons from changing or the tide from coming in. <coughs> Following autumn, winter comes we may not prefer it, but we trust it because we understand and accept its rightful place in a larger cycle, a bigger picture. Can we apply the same wise balance to the cycles of tides, of cycles and tides of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences in our own lives? So when I lived at Tassajara, I worked one summer in the stone office, which is the kind of um, you know, the front desk of a resort or something. Um, so all the guests would come there to check in. There's also a store. We'd sell knickknacks and books on Buddhism. And, um, and like everything at Tassajara, there's a real encouragement to take up your role as practice. So it's a kind of wonderful opportunity that we, um, an encouragement we don't often get. So 
I remember somewhere midway through the summer, the whole crew was kind of like, we'd had it, you know. Um, it's hot, there's no AC, you know, people are com coming to us com with every complaint that they have, you know. Um, Tulsa Har is a fascinating place because it's um, in a kind of an expensive resort, um, and yet it's run by total amateurs, so it's a bunch of STEM students um, <laughs> staffing every position. And so there's this kind of mis-expectation. Uh, you know, people pay a lot of money to come there and they expect the kind of service that they would get at a uh, resort with a professional staff. And <laughs> they don't find that. Um, and it's held together by duct tape. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But the food is the saving grace. What's that? The food. The food, yes. That's true. Like any angry guest, you just direct them to the next meal, and then they're okay. Or the hot, the hot springs. Um, but I think what what was really encouraging to me in my experience it, it, during this particular summer was that I had this internal pressure that, oh, they have all these expectations, and even though I don't really know what I'm doing, I'm supposed to meet these expectations. And we had a staff meeting one time in the middle of the summer when we were all just kind of falling apart as a crew. And um, I think it was Leslie, but somebody was sort of saying, just be who you are, you know. Um, don't try and be something else. And so if you are low energy, you know, don't try, try not to like run off the guests or tell them off, you know. <laughs> but, you, but you also don't have to smile. You don't have to say like, Put on a happy face for somebody else, um, and wow, what that sort of permission did for my own experience of that um, that summer, and um, I think to. Um, be allowed to be with things as they are, or things as it is, you know, is our practice. Um, and we uh, get pulled off of that kind of center point in so many ways. Um, and what was fascinating to me is that in the encouragement to just be who you are, like if, you, if you're tired or upset or something, you know, um, you don't have to hide that from the people you're interacting with. Um, was that things like functioned really smoothly after that? You know that when we when we weren't kind of suppressing some um, unmet kind of or, or some dissonance between like who I think I'm supposed to be and who who I actually am in this moment. Um, it actually all worked out okay. Um, so I don't know that I'm totally encouraging you to do that in your job <laughs> in the realm where people don't necessarily um, have the same ideal, but, but maybe practice with it sometime, you know, like even if it's for 20 minutes, just be like, oh, I feel really crappy today and I'm not going to kind of hide that fact. Um, there's a kind of way that our lives kind of go more smoothly in that kind of honesty um, that I feel like I've been uh, gifted through practice, that kind of understanding.
Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying so accept your crappiness. Yeah. But you don't want to give it away either, your crappiness to somebody right. else. There, there has to be some leverage there that you allow it to be and it makes you authentic and sincere with yeah. your crappiness. How, how do you do that then? Because you got your like life is a relationship yeah I, I, honestly I think if, if I'm truly with my crappiness if I'm if I'm conscious of it mm -hmm. I'm not actually um, bleeding it onto other people mm -hmm. but it's when I'm unconscious of my crappiness that I'm kind of quick with somebody or I'm kind of so I agree there's a kind of there is a fine line mm -hmm. but I think the answer actually is to be with that that being honest with myself internally, like I don't, doesn't mean I need to like tell everybody else how crappy I feel. Yes. <laughs> um, but I, you know, the more I can be present with it myself, the less I find it's kind of bleeding over onto other people. And that is, that's bodhisattva work, you know, that is um, kind of all we can do with this thing as it is, you know. I don't get to choose when I feel good or feel crappy, even though I try and manipulate that through myriad things, you know, um, to try and find a way to make myself feel okay. It's not, it's not under my control, and that's sort of what... Um, one, of the, one of the quotes was, but anyway, it, feeling how I feel in a conscious way is a gift to other people. You can see it as that. Yeah. Ernest. I was just thinking about the, the, maybe it's the difference between acceptance and letting go is mm -hmm. making an effort to fix something, to repair something. You know, if one action you could take, you know, I don't think you're suggesting that you make no effort to, right. to, to change things. Are you? I mean, no. it could be that if your knee hurts, you need to go to more yoga classes or yeah. something like that, something outside the experience of, of sitting. But uh, I guess you're suggesting we accept it first. Absolutely. And then, and then, uh, it's, and then make an effort somehow. Maybe. And it may change things for the better for Maybe. Your, no, I appreciate that. It's actually, you know, in my outline of my talk. So thanks for bringing my attention back to that. Um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's most important in the in the moment of our experience to accept. This is what's happening, you know. Um, especially with things we don't want to be happening. Um, but then from there, that kind of conscious acceptance, um, so the way that I think um, acceptance overlaps with, say, virya, or um, kind of action or energy, is that if I'm really conscious with what's happening or things as it is, um, there's a kind of trust that from there a response will flow or a kind of I'll have a better sense of what actually is required in this moment. Um, and to allow that, to not stifle that and say, no, I just have to sit here and keep trying to accept everything. But I think 
the thing that I think most commonly I see in myself and other people is, is the kind of the, the first moment doesn't involve acceptance. It already involves, it should be some other way, you know. So, yes, I think like the, the most profound part of the practice of acceptance is that very first moment. Oh, this is how it is. This is how I am. This is the moment I'm in. This is the circumstance. This is what's arisen. Um, yes. So that kind of stability, that moment of um, being present and allowing what's happening, then we can act from there. But I think often we're acting in a kind of avoidance of the moment that's happening, an avoidance of the way I feel or the people around me and the way they're acting or whatever. Um, so absolutely, we do need to kind of engage with our world and ourselves. Um, but I think through practice, we develop this trust that if I take, it's not even taking a moment, it's not even taking time per se. It's actually if I'm present, with what's happening, um, then I act from there. But it's very important, the practice is how do I stay present with what's happening? How do I stay present here? And I think there's a lot of trust in what comes from that. Um, any other thoughts or questions? Yeah. <coughs> One of the things that was that occurred to me as you were describing the sentence a minute ago, practical matter, and then you have this example of work. Yeah. Uh, it seems that it, you know, if we're setting our intention to, to contemplate those things in our daily lives, then it, it would be that you think about the choices you make with regard to how to, what to do. So, what you're doing. You, you, you know, if you were unhappy, you know, those weren't necessarily your words, but there was the, you know, the, the teacher told you something and it changed your perspective and perhaps you made different choices in how you acted mm -hmm. uh, because you, you, know, you aligned your intentions and so it sort of informed what you did. And so as a practical matter, we would apply these things in terms of the choices of what to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's true, but I think often um, I'll take a little bit of issue with the with the term doing. So, like, I think often what the response is or what the answer is to not to stop doing. Yeah. Like, um, so in that in that example, it's like what I'm doing is overlaying some expectation that I think other people have of me in some way. I think I'm supposed to appear. There's a lot of doing in that. And so the permission in the, the guidance from the teacher was actually just stop doing that. Um, so I think often the most important doing is undoing and not doing and, and allowing and being and kind of staying observant to that. Yeah. yeah. Tim, in the, I think in like 12 step programs, there's this great phrase. It's like, yeah. uh, don't just do something, sit there. Yeah. You know, and, and um, to me, that's. I mean, I really like that because yeah. my thing always is, you know, do something, you know, instead of like 
just sitting there. Yeah. But but the other thing in your um, talk and how you're giving it um, reminds me of trust. And so I think when I moved from like a Catholic tradition to mm -hmm. a Zen tradition, I mm -hmm. kind of gave up this notion. And Koji talks about this too about like um, um, what is that line? Vast vast um, about kind of this beneficent world, you know, that it's not just nihilistic you know, nothingness, but there is some source that you can tune into if you trust in it that, you know, in the moment kind of releases other possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's just helpful to hear that again about this world of trust or beneficence yeah. um, that's also a part, it seems like, of this tradition. Yeah. Um, no, there's a lot there. And I, 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 I feel like since I've been coming to Austin just in the last year that some aspect of kind of faith or trust has been kind of interesting me in my own practice. And I think it is, it is, I mean, I, when I, when I started kind of working with, like, is there some beneficence to the universe or to the way things are? Um, I would open Suzuki Roshi and find him talking about faith everywhere. It was kind of fascinating that it is, it is in uh, our practice. And yet I think as Westerners and the type of person that people are, that are drawn to Buddhism in the West, there's often a kind of denial of that maybe aspect of Buddhism or a kind of um, scientific bent of um, cause and effect, and this is just kind of, um, anyway, I think it's a hugely interesting question to, to kind of inquire in your own practice. What place does faith or trust hold? Um, and to me, I don't, you know, I don't claim to know um, what's holding this all together, or if there is something, but I find it helpful in my own experience and through experience, not just on kind of blind faith, but to, that when I trust the moment as it is, when I trust my life as it's presented to me, it's not always fun or, or um, exactly what I want, but when I trust it, the kind of lessons I learn and the, the engagement of my own life is much richer and deeper than when I kind of want to figure it out in some way of like scientifically or something. So um, I do see, I see the sort of trace of trust and faith and um, I think that's in acceptance too. You know? And some part of me feels like I just don't have a choice. Like that's, that's kind of, um, I'm choosing that response because I know how painful it is to try and structure my own life and think that I'm in charge of everything that that doesn't work out very well for me, um, and that my life actually just flows a lot better if I'm a little bit more willing to just accept that this is the way it is. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So I think I have a good example of accepting things as it is, or alternatively not accepting things as it is. Uh -huh. uh, a few weeks ago, I actually had a friend who um, was cooking something uh, she reached out, touched a hot pan, and burned her hand. Mm -hmm. uh, which, if you've ever burned yourself on a pan or a stove, it is extremely painful. And 
she said that she was really going through the thought process of, oh, if I had just not reached out in Japan, I wouldn't have ruined my hope. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have, mm -hmm. you know, be in this kind of pain, mm -hmm. which, you know, just the level that she kind of fixated on, if I had not done this, mm -hmm. I would not be in this situation, seems to be kind of a lack of accepting things as it is. Right. Which, of course, like, that doesn't mean, like, don't try and fix it, don't try and, you know, put your hand in cold water to relieve the pain. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, fixating on, if I had just not done this. Yeah, because then there's two kinds of pain. There's the pain of the burned hand <laughs> and the pain of the self-scorn, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think much of our lives breaks down to those like different layers of pain that were caught, like that are being caused here, and unpacking those is part of our practice. And yeah, I think ultimately uh, we can get to or somewhere near the place where it's just the pain. I don't think we ever get away from that pain of the sort of scalded hand, but um, I think we do kind of slowly unwind our kind of instant packing up all these other layers of pain on top of that. Um, but yeah, it's a very clear example. Thank you. Yeah. One thing that I've been thinking about recently is how oftentimes the most hurtful thing you can do to somebody is tell them what they already know to be true. Mm. And I think that's because mm. a lot of times people are asking you to help them not accept. Mm. So how do you manage those situations, which to me come up so frequently, small and large, mm -hmm. where somebody, the only thing that they want from you is to help them not accept? Mm. Mm. You know, I think <clears throat> it sounds like a, a cop-out, but it would depend on the moment. You know, I think sometimes we have to be really present to know if somebody's, somebody else is willing or open to some, some new news. And if they're not, you know, maybe we just sort of let it be. Um, and maybe even letting it be is sort of some um, companionship in their um, avoidance of reality. So it may sound weird to say that, but I think um, yeah, there's a variety of responses. And sometimes the response is like, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm not going to agree. I'm not going to disagree. Oh, okay, yeah, that's where you're at. Yeah, you know. Um, is that so? Is that so? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if that's done in a present way, I mean, I think I'm sure you've had this experience with a teacher or two, and I, and I know one teacher in particular who, who uses a similar phrase, like, really, is that how it's going, you know? And, and my earnestness to, like, demand that he understand that this is the way things are, and his, his ability to just sort of stand just beyond it and say, oh, okay, yeah. It's not punitive, it's not kind of combative, but his 
presence of seeing kind of the the flaw is enough to make me kind of be like, oh, oh okay, maybe my um, assurance in the way things are isn't quite right on target. And I think that's most often what we can do for other people. It's just kind of our own um, stability, allowing them to consider some other possibility. Yeah. So I have a question on faith, something that I've struggled with a lot in my practice. Yeah. Um, so if you look at the science, would say that we don't really know what enlightenment, Dharma or Dhamma, whatever you want to call it, is. It's likely that the Buddha was probably enlightened, but <coughs> since then, you know, it might be asymptotic. You get really close, but you don't really get there. Mm-hmm. And then the people that are waving their hands saying I'm enlightened mm-hmm. probably are enlightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on one hand blind faith can be very destructive to a practice but I find that doubt and inquiry when taken to an extreme can also be very destructive how do you balance those two seemingly opposite uh, aspects of this practice I think we just study it right here. So all of the, you know, when I I trust that it's going to be okay, you know, as a kind of question, I think it's going to be okay, you know, and then um, see how that goes and be present for the the kind of feedback. And then when I think I can kind of figure it all out and design my life in a way that's going to make me feel just so, you know, then stay present with the process of that and see how that makes, how that, how that turns out. So um, in a way it still is scientific, but the the experiment is just right here because that's all I have to go with, you know. I don't know how other people are experiencing the world. can't know that. Mm. But, you know, I do think it does involve some balance of the two. Um, But we have to figure out what the appropriate balance is for our own life. Well, I want to thank you all for being here today.